You're listening to the Baha'i World News Service, reporting on major developments and endeavors of the global Baha'i community. 150 years ago, Baha'u'llah had just arrived in Akka, placed in a solitary prison cell where he was to live for more than two years. That period seemed to be a low point in the fortunes of a newly born faith. Yet from his pen streamed forth a series of remarkable writings addressing the kings and rulers of his time. Those historic works signal that humanity is on the cusp of a new civilization. Baha'u'llah urges the rulers of his time to establish a system of collective security and move toward disarmament, to champion the cause of justice, to show the utmost care and consideration for the well-being and rights of the poor, and work toward a lasting peace he praises representative government and the abolishment of slavery. He proclaims his station as a divine messenger. At the heart of his message is the oneness of humankind. These extraordinary ideas are the subject of our exploration. It is remarkable how relevant Baha'u'llah's vision from 150 years ago is to the current situation. We can see that the work of Baha'u'llah in 1867-1868 is providing not only a place for peace, but giving detailed vision and measures uh, for creation of a, a lasting peace. To my knowledge, this is the first time an Iranian, whether inside or outside Iran, praises a parliamentary system. This is the third podcast episode in a series commemorating the 150th anniversary of the arrival of Baha'u'llah in the Holy Land. To listen to the first two episodes, visit news.baha'i.org. In this episode, we'll hear insights and reflections from various individuals about the context in which these ideas were revealed and their implications for our time. Baha'u'llah addressed the rulers of the East and West collectively, and some of them individually. In these works, he covers a remarkable breadth of topics. The context in which these works were penned highlights their visionary nature and relevance not only to the world of the 19th century and today, but far beyond, foreseeing the reorganization and transformation of the entire planet and the emergence of a global civilization that is spiritually and materially coherent. Ariane Sabet works with the UN System Staff College in Turin, Italy, overseeing senior leadership development at the UN, and wrote her PhD dissertation on political ethics. She discusses world order in the time of Baha'u'llah. World order of the time of Baha'u'llah was very much defined by the political realities of five major geographical areas, in the world then, Europe and its sphere of influence also beyond its core geography into its colonies. Then we have the Middle East, of course, a center of political activity and at the core, the Ottoman Empire, which at the time was already in a state of decline and beginning to disintegrate. The United States, a new actor, new power factor, 
and uh, Latin America, on the other hand, searching for ways to become more independent from Spain. Quite a few new states were being established at the time. And then finally, Japan and China, very important strategic areas in the Far East, both pushed to open themselves to Western influence in the 1850s. The nucleus of European politics was grouped around five states and their respective areas of influence. These are often referred to as the great powers of the time, France, Russia, Great Britain, Austria, and Prussia. Political determining factors were the intellectual currents of liberalism, nationalism, uh, socialism, and colonialism was morphing into imperialism at the time uh, in Europe as well. Sasha Dehrani, a scholar in the field of religious studies and recent fellow at the Harvard Center for the Study of World Religions, speaks about the attempts to reform the political, social, and religious systems of the time. There are many religious and political movements in the 19th century, many significant ones. But most of them try to reform or improve and be innovative about social, religious, and political reform, even economic, in light of their own culture to improve their own religious tradition. And I think Baha'u'llah transcends this by having this global view. Baha'u'llah's writings went beyond the particular interests of any one group or nation, and challenge the leaders of the world to embrace a vision of global solidarity and the oneness of the human race. Again, Ariane Sabet. While in the 19th century, we generally see often an overemphasis on nation, culture, and race, Baha'u'llah brings the idea of global consciousness of the organic unity of the world. And uh, this is very, very progressive. Many of the countries, uh, we see that in Europe, had barely finished their own nation-building activities. We can see that in, with Italy or with Germany. And on, on the other side, uh, Baha'u'llah already enunciates this ideal of global unity, of organic unity, uh, but also becoming even more precise around fixing of state boundaries, um, mechanisms for peaceful coexistence, and uh, uh, how a just order on the international scale can be brought into existence. You see, in the time period of Baha'u'llah, um, we have different movements. Let's take the religious movements, the birth of new religious movements. We have the Mormons, we have the Adventists, we have the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, all of them are in a mode of expectation about the return of Christ. We have the same in the Islamic world. We have a Mahdi figure in Sudan. We have the Ahmadiyya movement in the later 19th century in, in Pakistan. We have political reforms. The Ottomans are in favor of the Tanzimat, and this Tanzimat is to reform the Ottoman Empire to learn to some extent from Europe, but also to be able, you know, uh, to be independent from, from Europe, not to be weak. Um, we have a pan-Islamist movement at this time period. Single individuals and reformers, they think about how to reform the Islamic world and bring them together. We have a pan-Slavic movement, you know, of the countries in East Europe and the Russian 
Tsar sees himself as the protector of this movement, and actually they start to break away from the Ottomans. You know, we have uh, abolishment, I mean, of slavery, which is an important social movement uh, in, in, in itself, and Baha'u'llah commends Queen Victoria for taking steps towards, you know, abolishing slavery. But we know that in, in the United States, there's civil war at this time about this question. So what I'm trying to say, there are many significant and important steps in humanity taken towards a new form of social or and religious and political organization and reform. But when you study closely the texts of Baha'u'llah and you compare it to these other movements, at least from my humble understanding, I think Baha'u'llah's vision is broader, or sh should we say deeper, stronger. That's why, I mean, the idea of unification is not just a theory. He actually provides the different means and invites the different kings of the world and ecclesiastics to become one unified body. During the 19th century, War was regarded as a legitimate instrument in executing national policy, and there were mechanisms in place to facilitate peace and order between some nations. Ariane Sabet again. Interestingly, there's a range of arrangements that the great powers made at the time to ensure some sort of stability, most notably the alliance system, so there were multiple alliances between countries to keep peace uh, to the degree possible in the sense that um, alliances were made for non-aggression. The second rather classic form of safeguarding world order and territorial security of states was to have family members in positions of power, either through marriage, and here we see, for example, um, the widespread of Queen Victoria's relatives that uh, were married throughout dynasties in Europe. And then thirdly, also to emphasize ideological commonalities. Yet those arrangements would become completely inadequate for addressing the challenges of the 20th century. What Baha'u'llah envisions in his writings is a comprehensive and profound piece. Nader Saidi, a sociologist who is currently an adjunct professor of Iranian studies, at University of California, Los Angeles, in the United States, comments on the context in which Baha'u'llah puts forward this far-reaching vision. We can see that the work of Baha'u'llah in 1867-1868 is providing not only a place for peace, but giving detailed vision and measures uh, for creation of a, a lasting peace. It is through this new culture, that he is proclaiming his new cause, that he's building this new divine temple, and he is turning the oppression of the tyrants by exiling him to Akka into a spiritual journey of emancipation of humanity, emancipation from the culture of hatred and prejudice, and movement towards culture of unity as mirrors of divine unity. For Baha'u'llah, the right response to oppression is to maintain the dignity 
of human spiritual nobility and promote a culture of peace, create a culture which transforms the hearts of the people, including the tyrants. You criticize and negate the culture of oppression, but you don't do that through the sword. You do that through the word. Nader Saidi further explores how Baha'u'llah's conception of peace was situated in intellectual movements of his time, especially in the field of sociology, which was just beginning to emerge in the mid-1800s. Nader Saidi describes two major differences between the perspective of the progressive and prominent sociologists of that time and the perspective found in the writings of Baha'u'llah. The first difference is that sociology comes in existence out of realization and consciousness that nation states have become an organic unity. But these organic entities are states, are nations, are nation states. It is not the world. And it is partly for this reason that sociology does not pay attention much to the question of war and peace. When they exceptionally engage in the question of war and peace, they are optimistic. So, for example, Auguste Comte and Herbert Spencer, both of them, they talk of war as something belonging to the past, what they call military society. And they believe that now 19th century already has realized the industrial society, and industrial society is going to be a society of peace forever. Even Marx, that uh, has no optimism uh, like these people about emerging capitalist system, he rarely ever talks about war and, and peace. It's not one of the issues in his writings. In the very few exceptional cases that he has talked about it, he also has optimism about prospects of peace and, in a sense, uh, sees capitalism as conducive to peace because he says that the commercial interest of the bourgeoisie is incompatible with war. Now, contrast this with the messages of Baha'u'llah now to the leaders of the world. The main issue that he's emphasizing is the question of war and peace. He sees it as the most urgent question of the time. He sees the, he sees the necessity for urgent action. And of course, we know that 20th century proved that Baha'u'llah was right. 20th century is one of the bloodiest centuries in the history of humanity. Having looked at the context in which Baha'u'llah addressed the leaders of his time, we now explore how those ideas have become increasingly the central issues humanity is grappling with and responding to. Ariane Sabet explains. Since the time of Baha'u'llah, and in particular in the 20th century, the world has witnessed an upsurge in the creation of international organizations around a range of topics, but also many more international agreements that now shape world order in present time. When Baha'u'llah addressed the kings and rulers of his time, it seemed favorable for uh, 
for Baha'u'llah's call to be accepted or to be implemented because it was such a small group of people who could influence almost the entire world's course. However, in retrospect, one may think that the idea uh, explained seemed uh, premature given the ideological climate of the time and maybe difficult to comprehend fully. We fast forward a few decades uh, and with the end of World War I, we see a great change of consciousness. This then led to the very quick institutionalization of international organizations and refinement of those organizations, particularly at the world level, the United Nations, with the Second World War of the 20th century. To date, the assemblage of leaders that Baha'u'llah had called for um, has not yet taken place in that same form, nor has there been a worldwide consultation uh, on such important elements as the determination of borders. However, the institutionalization of the UN and collective action in crisis situations demonstrate the first attempts to implement elements of such a system. The leaders of the world will converge at the United Nations next week for the 73rd session of the General Assembly. Bonnie Dougal is the principal representative of the Baha'i International Community's United Nations office in New York. They will be making plans for a summit in 2020 when the UN will celebrate its 75th anniversary and examine the vulnerabilities of the current global order and look ahead to focus on overcoming the challenges of today. It is remarkable how relevant Baha'u'llah's vision from 150 years ago is to the current situation. He called on the rulers of the world to unite, to resolve their differences, to regard the world as one country, to be stewards of the poor, to tread the path of justice, to reduce their armaments and establish peace. And of course, a gathering of world leaders similar to that of the United Nations is also something Baha'u'llah envisioned at that time. The teachings of Baha'u'llah offer profound insights, which if applied would serve to lead humanity towards lasting peace. His writings on peace and security, harmony with nature, human rights, interdependence of nations, equality of women and men, harmonious coexistence, and the role of religion remain a beacon for the world. Baha'u'llah's writings covered a wide range of topics related to world order. One of these was the concept of collective security, which has become a central feature of the contemporary international order. Ariane Sabet explains. He announces that uh, there should the, the kings and queens and the rulers, they should unite. And uh, in case one of them would raise arms against the other, to stand up all together would be nothing but manifest justice. This is, of course, a new uh, thought in its universality of the theme. It is an announcement of collective security as it hasn't been done before. We have other thinkers that have uh, talked about systems of creating uh, a perpetual peace system, such as Immanuel Kant, we also have uh, other 
thinkers who were wondering about how to secure the peace, in particular in Europe. Now, Baha'u'llah announced a much more comprehensive, a very complete, uh, very universal system of collective security, the like uh, the world has not yet seen, but also the ideas had not been so clearly laid out before and uh, even after the attempts in establishing such a system, for example, with the League of Nations and later with the uh, United Nations, haven't borne the fruit that comes with such a complete system as, as Baha'u'llah uh, as Baha'u'llah's blueprint shows us. Baha'u'llah called on the rulers of his time to see their people as their treasure and the true source of their authority and power. In his tablet to Queen Victoria, he praised the idea of a representative government. In further reflecting on this aspect of Baha'u'llah's messages, Nader Saidi references a well-known passage of Baha'u'llah about the people. By them ye rule, by their means ye subsist, by their aid ye conquer, yet how disdainfully ye look upon them. How strange, how very strange. What Baha'u'llah is saying is that kings don't have any power of their own. Power is always belonging to the people. It is the power of the people. It is the work of the people which provides the possibility of power, of wealth for the rulers. If power, if wealth ultimately is product of the people and activities of the people, then philosophically, sociologically, the only legitimate form of political order would be democracy. And of course, this is compatible with the basic idea of Baha'u'llah that by the new revelation, all things and all people have become reflections of God, are endowed with equality and rights. And therefore, democracy becomes one necessary element. But this democracy is based upon a spirituality. So it's not the... Uh, the logic of jungle in the form of battle of parties together and selfishness of different individuals thirsty for power and hatred of this party against that party and the like. It's a democracy based upon recognition of unity of humankind, the spiritual dignity of all, loving all, and then replacing sword by the word. And through that, a peace full realization of social order. Mina Yazdani, an assistant professor in the Department of History, Philosophy, and Religious Studies at Eastern Kentucky University in the United States, adds to this. To my knowledge, this is the first time an Iranian, whether inside or outside Iran, praises a parliamentary system. Uh, we have to be uh, uh, conscious that the, aware that this is a time where Nasser Shah is ruling as a despot. Despot, nobody dares to talk about anything such uh, such as that, and um, uh, both inside and and if they are Iranian outside uh, of Iran. Sasha Deghani again. So we are dealing now with the results, which says Baha'u'llah himself says that you know God has taken the power from the kings and the ecclesiastics, in other words, from individuals who in the past dispensations, you know, um, would have had, you know, the chance because of uh, being actually, you know, free and unbalanced to abuse their power. 
And the moment that this power has been seized from the kings and ecclesiastics, to whom is power given then? Well, it is given to the collective body of humanity. Although Baha'u'llah's historic message was largely unheard by its recipients, its relevance has only grown with the passage of time. Bonnie Dougal again. The world was a very different place when Baha'u'llah addressed its rulers and leaders. We are still far from realizing his vision, but there has been progress and we can see greater potential today for moving toward the kind of civilization Baha'u'llah envisioned. As a global community, Baha'is are working with like-minded collaborators for the betterment of the world. It is Baha'u'llah's teachings on the unity and oneness of humanity that shapes all of our endeavors and our contributions at the United Nations. The principles in these monumental tablets of Baha'u'llah remain our guiding light. Indeed, Inspired by the vision of Baha'u'llah, Baha'is and many others across the globe are working to establish communities and a society that reflect the principle of the oneness of humankind. 150 years ago, Baha'u'llah's exile to Akka was meant to decisively put out the light of his teachings. But today, that light has illuminated every corner of the world. This has been the last in a series of podcasts about the arrival of Baha'u'llah in Akka. You can listen to the whole series on news.baha'i.org. You're listening to the Baha'i World News Service, reporting on major developments and endeavors of the global Baha'i community. For more information, visit news.baha'i.org.